Well, uh, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. My name is George Gaskell. I'm co-director here. Uh, a very well, very warm welcome to this evening's event, and a particular welcome to those of you who are not part of the LSE community, i.e. outsiders. Delighted you're here. Now, this is uh, part of the LSE's fifth literary festival, which is running until Saturday evening. And there are still tickets available for a number of events, so if you'd like to return for further events, do check the website. You can book online. The uh, theme of this year's literary festival is in part a homage to uh, Dennis Diderot. And we chose the title Branching Out because Diderot had identified the uh, pioneered the branches of human knowledge. He was a prominent philosopher, art critic, and writer, and a key member of the Enlightenment. So that takes us nicely on to uh, our speaker this evening. We're delighted to welcome John Gray back to the LSE and back to the Literary Festival for tonight's event, celebrating the publication of his book, The Silence of Animals, which is going to be on sale outside the venue, and John will be signing copies after the lecture if you would like one. You have to pay for it first, of course. Uh, John is Emeritus Professor of European Thought here at the school. Uh, he's previously held appointments at Oxford, Harvard, and Yale. He's written a number of books which have uh, achieved very considerable acclaim. Straw Dogs, False Dawn, uh, and I believe it was last year's literary festival here, he introduced us to the Immortalization Commission, Science and the Strange Quest to Cheat Death. So this evening we look forward, John, to your coverage of your new book and on your latest ruminations on the state of humankind. Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce John Gray. Thank you very much, George, for that generous introduction. I'm not quite an outsider here, as he mentioned. I had 10 happy years here. Um, it's a wonderful place for the germination and cross-fertilization of ideas. And I'll be talking about ideas tonight, particularly the idea of progress, or as I prefer to describe it, the myth of progress. And what I, my main aim is to try and say clearly, or at least as clearly in the book, I'm not sure I can do better than that, um, what I mean when I say that progress in the way that we currently understand it, I would say probably most people in this room, is a myth, what that really means. But I'll begin not with a, an idea or an argument, but with a quotation from a story, a story by one of the great 20th century modernist writers, um, Joseph Conrad, um, who um, seems to me, in fact I once wrote a 
short piece for the New Statesman in which I said Conrad was our best 21st century writer. The reason for that is that the world he writes about at the start of the 20th century, a world of uh, imperialism, of meaningless wars, of cruel barbarisms, terrible massacres and slaughters, geopolitics, struggle for natural resources against a background of high ideals and flowery words, the, word, the, the world in which he lived is, I think, in many ways, the world in which we live today. And Conrad wasn't only a writer. As many of you may know, he was Polish by birth. His first language was Polish. His second was French. The language in which he's famous as a writer, English, was his third language. And one of the extraordinary features of him is, um, is that fact, that he writes wonderfully well in a language which um, was his third language. But another feature which I think is unusual is that he wasn't entirely, uh, as most of us are, um, a professional writer who sits beside, behind his or her desk and thinks up things to write. He had a very adventurous life. Uh, he ran away to sea, much against his family's disapproval, when he was a young man. He traveled all of, pretty well most of the world um, as a seaman. And he also, and this brings me to the story with which I'll begin, he went to the Congo. He went to the Congo at the time when uh, the Belgian part of it was essentially a private fiefdom of King Leopold. And uh, at a time when uh, one of the great um, uh, atrocities of the 20th century was being committed, the large-scale uh, enslavement, um, forced labor, and eventually, I would say, genocide of a large part of the population by starvation, by overwork, or by sheer uh, simply being killed. And that experience, which he wrote about not only in his um, celebrated story, The Heart of Darkness, but also in a diary which he kept at the time and which is published together with The Heart of Darkness in some editions, um, that experience changed him fundamentally. And he put it in a, a way which is, I think, rather profound and paradoxical and true. He said, when I went to the Congo, I was a mere animal. What he meant was, he was a mere civilized European. That's to say, he took the assumptions of civilization, his own civilization, for granted when he got there. He thought that it was an essentially um, benign project. He continued to defend civilization, as indeed I do. Isn't it? But what he learned when he was in the Congo was that um, barbarism can exist within civilization, that civilizations are um, always um, twisted uh, by impulses and projects which express barbarism. And remember, the, the project that um, uh, um, Leopold initiated in the Congo, which led to enormous deaths, I mean, there have been some very good books written on the subject, but I'm not sure there is a consensus as to how many died, how many perished there, some could think of it in one way or another, it could be as high as 20% of the population. Um, but that project was described by Leopold and his backers, European financial and other backers, as a project for Christianity, civilization, and enlightenment. 
Um, now, Conrad witnessed what he witnessed. I think it changed him forever. He, he said that himself. And he came to view, while, while holding to the ideals, the values of civilization, he came to think that um, uh, barbarism was permanently possible, would recur in history, um, and uh, could never be finally defeated, but should always be fought. And that's my view, and it's really the essence, if you like, it points to the essence, and I'll read this passage in a moment, but it points to the essence of what I think the myth of progress is. Obviously, in many ways, things are better today than they were in previous times in human history. If we take a more parochial example, um, Europe in today is better than Europe was in 1940, in nearly all respects. Um, there have been great advances in the emancipation of women, still partial, the emancipation of gays, still partial, and in many other respects. They're all, to my mind, civilized advances which should be persisted with and pursued and promoted and defended. So things can improve in ethics and politics, but the crucial difference between ethics and politics, or let's say civilization, and science and technology, or if you like, the growth of knowledge, is that the growth of knowledge has become almost unstoppably cumulative. That means that what is, what is learned, what is, what is uh, discovered in science and then used in technology is very hard to lose. Um, obsolete scientific theories or uh, pre-scientific modes of thought um, don't typically recur. Whatever would happen in the world today, I would hazard the guess, even if there were a catastrophic um, ecological disaster which killed off 60 or 70% of all the scientists in the world, I don't believe we would find universities teaching alchemy again. They can teach a lot of nonsense. They might teach uh, creationism, which is a sort of parody of modern science. Uh, there are scientists who now are involved or people who think of themselves as scientists in forms of technological immortality which involve projecting information they've derived about themselves or their family members who've died into cyberspace. There's a famous man in America called Ray Kurzweil who's it's rather touching in many ways. It has a human content which is moving but it's still absurd. Uh, he's put all the information he can gather about his father and programmed it and projecting it into cyberspace so that he thinks he can then communicate with his father. Well, what he'll communicate with is not a living person or a, uh, someone who's got some kind of sentient uh, uh, inwardness or consciousness or awareness. He'll communicate with something that he's constructed himself. So I think that's nonsense. But still, we're not going to go back in science and technology. We're not going to back, go back in universities to uh, teaching astrology or, um, or alchemy, whatever else might be going on. But in ethics and politics, every evil that has been defeated can and normally does recur. Comes back, sometimes under new names, or sometimes under the same name. So although we don't have chattel slavery now, we do have human trafficking, which comes close to it. In the 20th century, in the Nazi-occupied Europe, we had slavery on an enormous scale, which was replicated in the Soviet Union and in the, um, in the uh, Stalinist period, and some say uh, has been replicated also in um, Maoist China. Um, 
uh, many people in this hall uh, tonight will have lived through a moment in which one of the fixed points of ethics and politics and human civilization in the post-war period suddenly vanished. Um, when in almost exactly 10 years ago, um, I published um, a spoof article in the New Statesman called Torture, a Modest Proposal. Yeah, the date's important because it was a month before the invasion of Iraq, uh, in which I argued that if we were going to wage these enormous wars to modernize various parts of the world on our model, then we should realize that torture will be used. It was, although this was before the revelation, before Abu Ghraib, before any of those things came out. And in that case, we should modernize the role of torture and think of the various problems that torturers face. Torturers often have psychological difficulties. They're in need of legal counsel. Uh, even the most professional among them, and you might almost say the most compassionate, can make mistakes. People die sort of inexplicably. So I, I suggested that leading universities should set up various programs of uh, philosophical and medical research into enhanced interrogation techniques. And I cited things which were actually real, which was... Um, one or two American defenders of torture who were liberals had argued that torture should be modernized as well and one of them proposed that uh, a good way of modernizing the actual practice of torture legally we could have torture warrants he thought um, but uh, the practice of torture was to um, uh, um, use the method of um, needles under the fingernails because that can be used that can be done with highly sterilized needles and so that's a form of progress, if you like, in the realm of torture. Now, when I published this, nothing had happened. Everyone said, lots of people, the few people who perceived that I was talking about, satirical, those who, who re recognized the reference to Jonathan Swift and his modest proposal that the problems of poverty in Ireland could be resolved if people ate their children in Ireland. So they weren't really... I almost suspect something like that coming as part of the great society now. But... Um, uh, <laughs> People who recognized the satirical intent in that said this is a, a perverse exercise in willful pessimism. Nothing like this could possibly happen. Torture is embedded in international treaties coming out of the Second World War and even the First World War. It's still practiced, of course. It was widely practiced by the British in um, Kenya, for example, and then in Northern Ireland by the uh, Americans in Vietnam and the French on a very large scale in Algeria, just to take a few examples, there are many more. But it's prohibited. No one would relax the prohibition. Well, a year later, less than a year later, we found that the world's preeminent liberal democracy had relaxed the prohibition to the extent that practices which were categorically recognized in the Second World War as torture, like waterboarding, now became a way of facilitating a conversation between the interrogator and the subject of the interrogation. So, so this is the difference, and it's uh, this a rather lengthy preamble to the story. The difference, but the, the myth of progress is not that the world hasn't improved in many respects. It has. It's that in ethics and politics, or more broadly, civilization, what is gained can very easily be lost and normally over time is lost. So the kind of background idea of progress which people have, I think many people have, nothing to do with perfection, it's nothing to do with utopia, is that we can achieve a number of incremental gains one after the other 
And once you've achieved one gain, that's in place, and you move to another one. So once we've prohibited torture, torture still goes on, but we've got the prohibition in place, and over time it will fade away. Uh, we can then move on to emancipating some uh, group which has been persecuted or discriminated against in the past. Once that's achieved, we can move on to the abolition of war, blah, blah, etc., etc. That's the myth of progress. The myth of progress is that in civilization, uh, uh, in ethics and politics, there can be a kind of cumulative and increasingly irreversible advance of the sort that does in fact exist in science. So this is the quote. It's a little more arresting probably than what I've just said. It's from uh, Conrad's story, the lesser known story to which I referred, called The Outpost of Progress, also based on his uh, African experiences in the Congo, and concerns two Dutch traders who go out into the Congo, uh, go out into Africa, are alone there together, gradually lose their habits of work and their their identities even, lose even the faith that brought them there, which was a form of the faith and progress, and eventually perish with one of them killing the other and the one surviving one hanging himself. And the description uh, uh, I'm I'm reading out is of the one who hangs himself. Kayetz was hanging by a leather strap from the cross. He hangs himself on a cross. He had evidently climbed the grave, which was high and narrow, and after tying the end of the strap to the arm, had swung himself off. His toes were only a couple of inches above the ground. His arms hung stiffly down. He seemed to be standing rigidly at attention, but with one purple cheek playfully posed on the shoulder, and irreverently he was putting out a swollen tongue at his managing director. His managing director is the managing director of the firm which he served, who's come to find him because they've heard nothing from the traders in the jungle for a long time. And what he finds is this um, dead man swinging uh, from the cross and the other trader uh, having been um, murdered. And what Conrad was aiming to, I think, was targeting there was something which he actually not only didn't believe in, but positively hated, uh, because he'd seen the results, was a 19th century, a late 19th century, European form of the belief in progress. And ours, of course, is different, but it does contain some of the essential uh, elements. The form of the belief was this, was that, uh, and it was expressed, it was one of the underlying um, justifications or legitimations of imperialism at that time, that some people, some societies, some cultures, some civilizations, some sections of humanity had been able, for whatever reason, there were racist theories of this as well, of course, to grow knowledge faster than others. Having grown knowledge faster than others, they acquired more power than others did. Having acquired more power, they could generate more wealth. Having generated more wealth, they could generate yet more knowledge. And they could gradually bring the whole world into the arc of progress that they had created. And so backward peoples, people stuck uh, as they imagined the Africans were, or as they even imagined the extraordinarily refined civilizations 
uh, uh, which had existed in which existed in uh, under French rule, for example, in uh, uh, in um, in Southeast Asia, the so-called primitive civilizations, primitive cultures of Africa and Asia and elsewhere in the world, all these um, cultures were uh, um, backward forms of human development, which could be dragged, impelled, coerced if necessary. Uh, uh, and brought to into a, a more dynamic civilization, which would use them to the best of its ability, um, if they as resources, uh, which was the case in um, in the Congo. And when that was done, um, if any survived, or those that did survive, they wouldn't survive as members of the culture that existed before, because that would have been destroyed. But they would become something like progressive human beings, enlightened human beings. Now that imperialist form of the myth of progress of course, is of course rejected at least um, overtly um, nowadays, although I think you can sometimes hear echoes of it in some of the military adventures which Western governments seem incurably addicted to at the present time. But broadly speaking that imperialist form has disappeared. But the central idea of it the central idea of it being that progress in civilization, that there can be advance in civilization, uh, which um, uh, eventually runs in parallel with advances in the growth of knowledge, that's still the central belief of pretty well everyone who subscribes to the um, idea of progress. Now, it's got, again, it's nothing to do with utopia or perfection, nothing to do with inevitability, there needn't be anything inevitable about this. All the more sophisticated defenders of this idea of progress or myth of progress have recognized that there can be periods of backsliding, there can be periods in which a, a dark ages intervene and so on. But the background idea of it all is the notion that the growth of human knowledge is inherently, at, at least over the long term, and eventually, is eventually benign and progressive and liberating in its very nature. So that just as human knowledge grows and increases, so in time, eventually, and in due course, that knowledge can liberate mankind. Now I want to put to you a, an alternative view. And it's also it's, it's a view I think which is expressed in older and wiser myths. The view I put forward to you is, is this, which is that human knowledge grows and increases but human folly remains exactly the same. Now, what is folly? Folly is not stupidity. Some of the greatest folly-written folly projects have been launched by the cleverest people. Um, folly, I think, is a form in which myth encaptures people. Shallow myths encapture people. They attach the meaning of their lives to those myths, and they persist in the myth in the project and in projects connected with the myth, even when it turns out to be disastrous. Let me give you an example from today. Um, part of part of our knowledge, as it were, that we've gained over the last hundred years, is about infection, how infection spreads, and the kinds of um, uh, prophylactic techniques that should be used to stem infection in surgical practice, for example. And to get down to a rather practical level, uh, surgical gloves are widely used in hospitals and in surgical procedures because 
among other things, they limit the risk of infection. And it's even, I'm told, relatively uh, easy to, in certain contexts, to work out percentages of infection by whether the glo- how often the gloves are changed or whether they're changed. That's knowledge. That's the growth of knowledge. We've gained that knowledge. That's what I would call objective knowledge. What's interesting then is against the background of that knowledge is that in parts of Europe now, such as Greece, because there's an extreme shortage in surgical gloves, because there are cutbacks resulting from the policies of bailing out the banks and at the expense of the actual economies, because welfare provisions are being extensively cut back right across the board in certain countries, decisions have had to be taken to use the gloves repeatedly. Not to change them after every procedure, but to use them for five times or ten times or twenty times. And of course, knowledge tells us that that will lead to a higher level of infection than would otherwise be the case. Why is it happening? Well, of course, it's an immensely complex situation in Europe and there are no very simple ways of describing it, but one way one could describe it, which I think has some purchase or leverage on the reality, is that elements of the European political classes, not only in Greece but in other countries, have attached their credibility, their reputations, their, uh, their careers, um, uh, but not only that, but even their, the meaning they attach to their own participation in politics and history to an idea of a European project in which nation-states and the mixed-up, muddy cultures of the past are left behind and something quite different from what has ever existed before comes into being. In other words, they persisted a project. They persisted a project, even if um, many people think that it will eventually break down. And without speculating about the future... One can already see that it has the most horrific consequences, not only with respect to the use of surgical gloves and infection, but to over 60% youth employment in, unemployment in Spain, 26% unemployment overall, which is around what it was in the Great Depression in America, uh, um, uh, very high levels of unemployment in Italy and throughout large parts of Europe, an entire generation whose life chances are being irreparably, probably, harmed because whatever happens, whatever changes might occur, this crisis now, once started, won't be resolved in five or ten years. Probably we're talking about ten or twenty. So folly occurs when uh, um, human beings attach the meaning of their lives to a project and pursue it, whatever happens, even if it's obviously self-defeating and harmful and and, and destructive. And that's how, one of the ways, in which ethics and politics differ from science. Folly is an error. If you've ever tried, by the way, I did try in my misspent earlier years, to talk to someone, I even talked to one or two people who were involved in the, um, or even centrally involved in some cases, in the concoction of the Iraq war. say, well, didn't you read about the history of the country? They didn't, not one of them that I talked to had ever heard of Gertrude Bell. Anyone of you heard of her? She was the, the woman civil servant who actually created a female Lawrence of Arabia. She was described perhaps slightly patronizingly, sorry, uh, as she was being described uh, slightly patronizingly at the time, Gertrude Bell, 
Uh, if you ask people who are involved in this, she invented the state. She also said that it could never be democratic. It would break down and break up if the attempt was made. Um, not one of them had heard about it. Were they interested in the history of that part of the world? No, because for them, history was irrelevant. History was a prelude to their great projects. History was simply a rather tedious uh, introductory passage to the sort of things they could then achieve. And as we've saw, seen from Tony Blair the other, the other uh, evening on television, after 10 years and after all that has happened, he still holds to, what, to the rightness of what he did. Now, is he lying? I don't think so. I think to ascribe the capacity of mendacity to Blair does him much too much credit. <laughs> I don't think Blair describes him at all. To be capable of a lie means to be capable of a truth. Whereas I think what him, and not just him, but many others are like, is that they believe that by talking and thinking in a certain way, the way they talk and think will become true. And if you criticize it, it shows you're a malevolent, misanthropic, pessimistic, cruel, cynical character. If you say, well, you know, sometimes when you get rid of a dictator, things don't go all that well. Sometimes there's murder. Some people benefit, but others don't. Are women better off now in Iraq than they were under Saddam? Are gays? Maybe the, the Kurds are. Maybe the Marsh Arabs are. But the large parts of the population who I think it would be very quest questionable if you ask that, they say, well, that's because you're not looking at the big picture, John. In the big picture, everything is improving. In the big picture, if only we can have and the subsequent a couple more big wars. If only we can have a couple more big wars, sweep away a few more despots, then we'll have the wonderful enhanced humanity, the wonderful enhanced freedom that everyone actually wants, even if they deny it. So um, it's a feature of myth, and I'll um, work kind of come to a conclusion shortly, that it's deeply resistant to evidence. And I thought I would conclude by using something, uh, something from social psychology, something from experimental social psychology that I discuss in the book that some of you, I think, may well be already aware of, but others might not be, because it was an experiment done in the 90, early 1950s um, by a man called Leon Festinger. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Leon Festinger. He was uh, one of the founders of social psychology, and he was also um, the original, uh, he originally formulated the theory of cognitive dissonance. And the theory of cognitive dissonance uh, that he developed said that when human beings are confronted by facts or perceptions which contradict their most, the beliefs of theirs that they're most fundamentally attached to, they will not give up their beliefs they will reinterpret the evidence so that their beliefs are more strongly held. And in fact, Festinger, before he carried out the experiment, predicted that in cases like this, when there is incontrovertible, irrefutable evidence of the falsity of the belief, the normal human response 
is to come out from that falsification believing it more strongly. And not only believing it, but propagating it. And the experiment he did was an experiment in his wonderful book, uh, When Prophecy Fails, 1956, uh, where he uh, infiltrated himself and some co-workers into a flying saucer cult in America. And in this cult, uh, the leader of the cult had announced a particular night on which the world would end. Um, Always a bad move, by the way. Um, (laughs) Never does end. Um, A particular night on which it would end, and had convened the group to witness this, and when the end occurred, flying forces would arrive uh, simultaneously with a vast flood. The whole of mankind would be destroyed except the believers. They would be taken up and live in some wonderful other form of life. Um, Well, he infiltrated his members into the group. They sat during the night. Midnight struck. No flood. Flying sources hadn't arrived. Went through the night. Waited longer and longer and longer. And then, as dawn approached, as he, Festinger, had confidently predicted, the leader of the group said, well, we've succeeded. We've persuaded them not to land and destroy the world. (laughs) And... That was what then happened. The whole of the group then, or most, all, all the members, who, by the way, given up all their property, dissolved their relationships if they were opposed to this, uh, given up their whole worldly life to join the group and be picked up by the flying saucers, went out and propagated the flying saucer myth with even greater fervency than before. That's the essence. Now, I think that cognitive dissonance is the normal human situation. I think we're all prone to it, I and myself, we all are. Uh, But it leads to some of the worst features of human life, which is to persist in projects beyond the point at which it's clear that they're harmful. So, and by the way, I'm not necessarily making an ideological point here, it's almost an anti-ideological point. If you talk to free marketeers... Uh, you could say, but the experiment, if we'd let all the banks go under, there would have been catastrophe, there would have been disaster. They say, ah, they all say this, by the way, all. Ah, you don't really think that we ever had a free market, do you? You're not so stupid, so dumb, so primitive, so backward as to think that we had a real form, that we really had capitalism. This is not capitalism. This is, well, the same thing is exactly the same with certain Bolshevik, uh, Trotskyists, for example. You say, well, look at this former Soviet Union. Well, you're not such an absurd fool as to imagine that what was in this was communism, were you? Now, if it had been real communism, it would never have had any of these unfortunate consequences. Now, the trouble with that is that it's a refusal to learn from history, which is that projects of these kinds always have results like this. It's not because there is some hidden pure form of the project which has never yet managed to appear on the stage of history, and that when it does, everything will be wonderful. There is no such form. All these projects share the conflicts of those who promote them, the errors and the need of those who promote them, whatever their actual source is in, in the real world, to find a kind of meaning in their lives from promoting these, these, um, uh, these projects. So, and I find this in the belief in progress. To me, the myth of progress is a kind of super successful and super 
uh, uh, refined version of the flying saucer cult, which is whenever one, whenever one sees repeatedly that achievements, which are real achievements, genuine achievements, are rolled back in history. When one sees now in Europe not only terrible austerity and the loss of a whole generation, but the worst toxins of European politics, hatred of gypsies, hatred of immigrants, hatred of gays, anti-Semitism, coming back in various parts of Europe now, um, uh, when one sees this, uh, the argument is, well, if only we'd done X, Y, Z, it wouldn't have happened. Now, of course, that's partly true. I myself, when the financial crisis first broke back in 2007, 2008, when I was asked what I thought would happen, I said what would probably happen is that um, the, old, the old human response, which we'd seen in the 1930s and in many other contexts, in which sudden uh, outbreaks of economic insecurity and impoverishment are used not only by a few demagogues, though of course they always are, but by large sections of the population to target certain groups that are held to be responsible for this. So that if you can only get rid of these groups, deal with them in some normally very terrible and inauspicious way, then you can resolve those problems. That will happen again. Not on the scale of the 30s, because we don't have Nazi Germany, we don't have Stalinist Russia, we don't have huge states committed to these ideas, but in a kind of perversion of democracy. That's what I thought would happen. And that's, in fact, what I think uh, is happening. Um, and therefore, what's the, what's, what's the, as it were, the takeaway lesson from this? The lesson, if it could be learned, but I doubt that, would be don't engage in large projects which have these risks. Think of politics not as a succession of enormous projects of human liberation, but as a succession of modest expedients to resist recurring evils. And I'll kind of close on my very unoriginal idea of what civilization means in this context. What I think Conrad's story, which I urge you all to read, suggests is that civilization is natural for human beings, but so is barbarism. The growth of knowledge doesn't gradually over time make people more reasonable or more civilized. It interacts with human conflicts, human passions, and human folly to produce new kinds of civilization and new kinds of barbarism, which is what happened in the 20th century. Now, if you know that, you can't conjure away those recurring evils, but you might be more prepared for them. You might be less surprised, less dumbfounded, less flabbergasted when suddenly a civilized practice like the prohibition of torture vanishes overnight in a blink of an eye, almost without anybody noticing. Because all of these achievements, unlike the achievements of science and technology, are not only partial, they're, they're extremely fragile. So on that admittedly not wildly optimistic note, I'll end.
Thank you very much, John. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, we have about 35 minutes for questions, and uh, we have ro- we, our stewards have roving microphones, so please wait until I pick you out, and uh, please, we'll take questions rather than mini-lectures. Uh, John is the only person in this auditorium this evening who has given permission for that. Uh, and I'll take three questions at a time and I'll move progressively across. So we have two questions over there. Uh, is there a third questioner in, the, um, in that section? It's the quiet section of the auditorium. Okay. Right. Hello. Far away. Um, Please tell us who you are, where you come from. My name's Jonathan. Uh, I come from Manor House. Um, um, I'm interested in I'm, I'm a huge fan of your work but I'm interested in who gets to decide what folly is so you chose the example of a rat which is obviously something that I imagine consensus was a folly but do you think that the lack of intervention in Rwanda for instance um, which is a similar getting involved in a messy sectarian conflict which the West didn't get involved in do you think that was a good idea? And the next gentleman behind. Yeah, um, I'm interested in your opinions on uh, on climate change uh, and how it's what it's done to undermine the ideas of, of progress, especially for um, people like uh, us here in this room who lead uh, lifestyles which are the result of of progress and also the result of obviously extremely destructive uh, climate change. And is there a third question? Oh, Richard in the middle there. Uh, I very much agree, John, with your your fundamental distinction between knowledge where you get um, indubitable progress in ethics and politics where you don't. I think it was uh, J.B. Berry who said that belief in progress was similar to belief in the second coming of Christ and that it helps direct, therefore, our efforts to the construction of a better world. My question to you, to you is, do you think, and I think you were hinting this towards the end, do you think in contrast that constant doubt about the possibility of progress is enough to rescue the possibility of amelioration, or will even <laughs> that not do the trick? Thank you very much. Well, there are three wonderful questions. I'll try not to take, um, I'll try not to take too long on them so other people can have a chance. Um, who decides what's folly was the first question. And how do we make a distinction between um, uh, Iraq, which I think many people, not just me, lots of experts on the region, lots of diplomats, lots of people at the State Department in America, lots and lots of people even in America said, this won't work. We shouldn't do it. So it's not the case, by the way, when people said, if only we prepared more for the policy after the invasion, it would have worked. The truth was, if people had thought about what would happen after the invasion, they'd never have done it. Um, But how do we distinguish between that and, say, Rwanda, where maybe a terrible genocide could have been uh, um, prevented? Well, there is no simple way. I mean, why wasn't there intervention in Rwanda? I suspect, this again sounds terribly cynical, but that it wasn't, there weren't the material interests at stake for Western governments that there were in um, Iraq. Supposing Iraq's main economy had been cabbages, not oil. 
supposing it hadn't been where it is in the world, um, would there have been the invasion? Let's not forget that for a long time, uh, Iraq was, uh, the, 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 I mean, Saddam's Iraq was promoted and supported and funded and armed by the West. Years and years and years. What explained this sudden discovery that it was an evil dictator? A moral revelation of some kind? Deep study of the Bible? <laughs> this man's evil. We didn't realize that when we were sending all these arms to him. We thought he'd simply put them in museums or... Um, it was, I think, material interest, I'm afraid. Um, so all I can tell you, I mean, I, what I'm suggesting, can't stop things like this happening before, again. I think they will. I think they have happened again since then in other contexts. But it can perhaps make some people a little more skeptical, a little more critical. When you hear the reason we're doing this is eternal, infinite justice. So why were you supporting the tyrant until six months ago? Was that because you hadn't come up with a theory of infinite justice until then? Um, climate change. Well, climate change is, to my mind, first of all, it's real. Um, secondly, it is partly and crucially humanly caused. I think anthropogenic. I follow the scientists there. I speak to the scientists. I know some of the scientists. Uh, I trust them when they say that the evidence although it doesn't enable you to make firm predictions about what's going to happen when, because it's a non-linear process, shows that climate change, humanly caused climate change, is real and is advancing. And indeed, some of the scientists I've talked to say it's actually far from advancing more slowly than they thought. It's more quick in many contexts. Because a lot of the relationships are non-linear. If, if the ice melts more quickly, then other things happen more quickly. It's not something that can easily be actually modelled does that undermine the belief in progress? Well, it's certainly a gigantic problem. But oddly enough, you might think this is odd from what I generally rather sceptical views I propose. I don't think in itself it does, except in one respect, which is that if you think of the Earth as a system, then very probably there's enough of the dangerous gases already in it that even if the whole world stopped producing them now, there would still be serious climate change. So I think, and this is some Greens strongly oppose what I think in this respect, it will turn out to be a problem of adaptation. Now, there are certain types of climate change so abrupt and terrible that we couldn't adapt to them. But probably, you know, I still actually think that probably the human species can muddle through this. It'll be difficult. Uh, it'll involve all kinds of struggles. And at the moment, things don't look too good because I think practically everybody in this room is old enough to remember when climate change was a real political issue. Is it now? Do you hear anything from the coalition about it? No more huskies being hugged in photogenic parts of northern Finland? Um, do you hear uh, even Obama, who I admire, actually, I think he's one of the most able and uh, politicians in the world and the most admirable in many ways he's had to back off in various ways because in the middle of a crisis in the middle of a terrible recession which is lingering on 
and in some parts of Europe and the world getting worse, what people demand of their politicians and what politicians therefore supply or think they try, can supply are remedies to restart growth. And of course, it was partly unsustainable growth, both in terms of debt and in terms of natural resources, which got us where we are. So that's the kind of problem. So I'm not immediately very hopeful, but I'm not, on the other hand, um, I'm not an end-of-the-world person. Um, that's to say, uh, what I think is, we probably will muddle through, but it's going to be extremely difficult. And um, it does undermine certain simple ideas of human advance. Uh, it does undermine ideas in which human beings can master nature. Before we're through with this, and many of you will see more of it than I will because you're much younger than I am, I think you, we might have one or two major disastrous experiments in geoengineering. Some of you might have heard of some of, the, some of these ideas, ideas of putting up enormous sunshades between us and the sun. It sounds mad, but that's one of the reasons why it might happen. Uh, uh, ideas of uh, changing the, cons- the, the composition of the world's oceans irreversibly. Now, if you ask, why is this mad? Well, one reason it's mad is we, we don't know what the results will be because these are extremely complicated systems that we don't fully understand. But as if climate change really gets going and rapidly and sea levels rise and we have the extreme weather we've been having lately in parts of the world becomes normal, if those things happen, then there'll be a demand, not only from corporate interests and governments, but even from populations, voters, and in non-democratic countries, demands will be made also, to sort of do something about this. And then I think we'll see some potentially quite dangerous um, projects. Um, There's a rather wonderful third question I'll answer briefly. Berry, the the writer on history, um, early 20th century writer on history, said that belief in progress was like um, belief in the second coming of Jesus. It animated people to do good things. Now, I'm not religious. I don't belong to any religion. As far as I know, I have no religious beliefs. Although as P.G. Woodhouse, uh, when he was asked if he had any religious beliefs, he said, frightfully hard to tell, you know. Um, But... a sort of older and gentler kind of uh, response, so maybe I'm wrong. As far as I know, I don't have any, and I certainly don't belong to any religion, but actually, although I'm not a Christian, I do not believe in any of these, I actually find it easier to believe in the second coming than I do in the belief, of, in, the belief in progress. Why is that? Because the second coming is avowedly a miracle. The second coming is a, is an erup- is, is a disruption of the laws of nature by God. I'm not a believer in, in I find it easier to imagine partly because we know so little about the divine, that there could be something miraculous in the world, than I do to imagine, than, that I do to imagine a kind of slow, gradual, incremental, fallible, but nonetheless ongoing improvement of the world. And the reason I find that hard to imagine is that even if you look at the experience of the last 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, you can see a recurrence of... of, of of, of what some would call errors, but I call folly, um, uh, um, which is quite obvious. Let me give you an example. You've all lived through it. It surely was obvious in the bubble years, the years in which the price of oil shot up, houses were going, escalating uh, against gravity, in which debts were 
piling up, in which new firms were being announced, which had corporations that had the unique feature, the new paradigm back in 2001, that they could be perpetually expanding without ever making a profit. It was obvious that this was a bubble. And yet, if you, if you find at the time, nearly everyone thought it was real. People said, well, it is different this time. Let's be a little more skeptical. Just because bubbles have always burst in the past doesn't mean this is a bubble that's going to burst. This is fundamentally different. If you go back to the 20s, if you go back to uh, the tulip craze, in, if you go back to all the bubbles in history, you'll find people saying essentially the same thing. Why is it that nothing is ever earned? In my book I say humans are the only animals that can cumulatively grow their knowledge. But they're also an animal that's constitutionally incapable of learning from his experience. It's partly because it's, there are different <coughs> generations. Um, it's not perhaps impossible. People, again, you might say, aren't there, aren't there periods of history where this isn't true? Let me give you an example. The period after the Second World War was one in which the people who'd fought in that war, uh, political leaders and soldiers and ordinary citizens of various kinds, and prevailed against Nazism, knew that civilization was fragile. It had collapsed in the Great Depression. It had produced Nazism and fascism in Europe, and that was defeated. They knew this. They understood this. And they were young enough, strong enough, not to be broken by the knowledge, but to be constructive after the Second World War. So the period after the Second World War, in half of Europe, at least, was one of a continued advance for 30 or 40 years. Higher and higher living standards, in some countries, forms of social democracy and, uh, and liberalism prevailed where they hadn't before. It's a period of enormous advance. So there are periods in history when that kind of uh, um, advance can be maintained for a long period. But when historical memory fails, when you have some new projects launched which are essentially impossible and will have self-destructive effects, that's when you have dangers. And I'm afraid we're in a period like that now. Okay, uh, gentleman from here. Hi, I'm Ramin, member of public, relating to your uh, ideas on climate change. Don't you think environmentalism itself is ironically becoming the new myth for progressive thinkers? Okay. Um, Thank you very much, Professor John Gray, for your very interesting talk. I'd just like you to um, expand on something you said in your answers to the last round of questions. You said that you uh, admire Barack Obama, and mm. I, I find this quite surprising coming from yourself, and I was wondering if you could explain to people like me who say very little to admire Barack Obama what it is you find appealing about him. Okay. My name is Sigrun Davidsdottir. I'm an Icelandic journalist. I just find it difficult to, uh, to understand how you can talk about the myth of progress because, I mean, we are old enough to be able to think like 50 years back. And as far as I can see, I mean, there are plenty of things which have improved. Uh, so maybe this is a naive question, but uh, if you think farther back, 250 years or something, I mean, it's the same. So I just find your basis of assumption baffling. Um, okay, let's, I'll begin with one, the first I heard about um, climate change. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a very reasonable question. 
uh, and environmentalism. Isn't, um, hasn't environmentalism become a kind of uh, a theory of progress or a vision of progress, or hasn't it become almost a religion of progress? Well, from one point of view, yes, because um, many of the problems of the environment are not easily solved. Um, I mean, there's been a sort of tendency, at least in some environmentalist thinkers, to, to, to argue that if, if only you could rein in the corporations, if you could only stop certain institutions doing environmentally destructive things, then really we could have an environmentally much better world. Um, my view is that, different from that, which is that some of the problems of environmentalism simply come from um, a very legitimate human demand for a better life. If you have 7 billion human beings going towards 10 billion, each of whom, quite rightly, demands a style of life of the kind that affluent developed countries, Europe, North America, Japan, and others, have had. The question is, how do you do it? Because the form of life which um, these uh, highly affluent countries have um, uh, experienced and enjoyed is very, for one thing, energy intensive. Can we find alternative ways of generating that energy that are um, less damaging? Now, many environmentalists would say wind power, solar power, renewable energy. Is it really feasible that a population of the size that we've got could both dispense with nuclear and fossil fuels? I'm very skeptical of biofuels because they involve lots of damage to, uh, or have involved lots of damage to uh, uh, ecosystems. It's no good um, uh, trying to solve our climate change problem if in the, in, as part of trying to solve it you develop fuels which destroy rainforests which actually absorb some of the pollution that's been produced. I'm also very skeptical about fracking. That from what I can tell, is, uh, is environmentally risky. But I tell you this, fracking will be adopted, especially in America and China, and even in perhaps parts of Europe. Why? Because it offers the illusion, maybe, but it offers the possibility of a resumption of growth. And that's what everybody wants. Not, that's, if you're trapped in unemployment, in a, if you've been fired from your job, if your business has failed, if you're savings are being eroded, if you're stuck, you'll look with hope at technologies which promise to get things going again. So um, the answer is yes, uh, it can, environmentalism can have that uh, aspect, but it could also have another aspect which, of being like a theory of progress, which is to enable us to be more uh, resourceful in dealing with the limits that being on a small planet like this imposes on us. It doesn't mean we have to give in and just accept the level of life that we've got now or that many people in the world have now. We have to be a lot more resourceful and be less ready to be seduced by these um, technical fixes that really don't work. New technologies will play a large role, I'm sure, in adapting to the situation, but um, uh, Falling, in, uh, falling for things like biofuels, as happened under the George W. Bush regime in America, I think is an error. Uh, Obama. Well, I admire Obama. I didn't share any of the uh, 
enormous hopes that he, he generated at the start. Because it was sort of obvious that he couldn't achieve most of them. But he has got some great achievements to his credit. For one thing, he's, he's um, uh, faced down the really the maddest and the most myth-driven elements of American politics. He's faced down the right wing of the Republicans and the Tea Party. They may still be able to trip him up over the next few months in uh, the debt ceiling and so on. It's by no means resolved. But think back a year ago when the demands that were being made were to cut the deficit and simultaneously abolish the income tax, increase defense spending, but get rid of debt, the federal deficit. This is politics of fantasy. He's prevailed against that. It's an enormous, enormous achievement. And paradoxically, I think, what I like about him is that he has been a tremendously charismatic figure, but I actually like his rather cool, cerebral, analytical approach. He's a very intelligent, supremely intelligent leader, and he doesn't take on battles that he knows he can't lose. And if you are American or American liberal and you had tremendous hopes, he also comes from a part of the American community that has been systematically... um, discriminated against, but if you, if you had these enormous hopes, you'll think he's, he's betrayed you, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's fallen back, he's, he hasn't done what he said he would do. To me, he's achieved more than one could almost reasonably expect. So I, um, I do admire him a lot. Haven't things improved? Well, that my whole point was, was the third things have improved in many respects, but in every respect that they've improved can be lost. Look, if we'd been sitting here in um, 1913, which was the um, year in which a magazine I write for, The New Statesman, was founded. If we'd been sitting here in 1913, um, we'd have been reading a book by Norman Angel called The Great Illusion. And The Great Illusion was basically isn't war terribly unproductive? Isn't war extremely inefficient? Isn't it obvious that capitalists don't want war? Isn't it obvious that um, nobody wants war? It's so terribly inefficient. Um, Destroys so many things. So if there are going to be wars, there will be wars perhaps, but they'll gradually fade. And there won't be enormous great wars. Well, of course, there was the greatest war in human history happened a month later, a year later. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen again now, but in many respects, the 20th century, although better in some ways than the 19th century was also incomparably worse incomparably worse there's no question about it It uh, uh, there was nothing in the 19th century even in the worst annals of imperialism, yes the Belgian Congo although that was mostly 20th century there was nothing like the vast attacks by states on their own citizens that happened in Soviet Russia in Nazi occupied Europe and in Mao's Cultural Revolution. Um, even the figures, I mean, there are now, there's now this fashionable theory of the long peace that we're supposedly in. If you look at the theories of that, they usually count combat dead, combat casualties. But most of the people who died in the First and the Second World Wars didn't die on the battlefield. Most of those who died in those two wars died as a result of the cataclysmic impact on the economy, on the environment, on health 
They died in other ways. And also, large numbers of people who died in the 20th century, tens and tens of millions, as I say, died in camps or in slave labor uh, uh, or in other types of um, uh, extreme uh, loss of freedom, which shortened their lives and ended them in, in many cases. So, although it's true that in certain respects, at the end of the uh, 20th century was um, a lot better than earlier times in the 20th century than that in the 19th century. It's also true that the 20th century, in terms of sheer bloodletting, not only in combat dead, but much more widely, was probably um, the worst in human history. But I should say, I'm not trying to sort of dislodge the myth. I'm not trying to convert you to my view of things. Um, I'm not an evangelist. Um, I'm not a neo-Christian. Uh, I'm simply suggesting some questions which uh, and alternative ways of thinking which you may or may not find useful. But to me, it seems sort of pretty clear, looking at the 20th century, as that although with respect to wealth in parts of the world, um, um, with respect to uh, an advance in civilized standards in Europe and parts of the world, there's been, there have been great improvements. If you look at the longer sweep of history you can see not just the danger but the likelihood that many of the things that we take to be uh, improvements and are improvements and take to be fixed and almost unalterable could be swept away overnight or in a short period of time as a result of something happening which no one had anticipated like a cataclysmic bank collapse like a worldwide debit crunch, a debt crunch, like you can give many other examples. Let's take some questions from this side of the uh, auditorium, if there are some. Is that a hand I see up? Yes, thank you. You're You're very pessimistic about the point we're living in at the moment. Do you think there's any hope of a, a great cooperation to avert the worst of the position that we seem to be living in in the uh, 20th, 21st century? Thank you, madam. Uh, there's about five rows down. Jack with his hand prone. Um, going back to your talk, you talked about um, projects being doomed and cited the European Union and the Soviet Union. I was a little confused as to quite what you meant by projects. Do you mean society as a whole, or is it about their size? Are you suggesting these things wouldn't have the aust- austerity in certain states in Europe wouldn't occur because uh, were they independent or were they not attached to large things and are forming these big blocks impossible? And if that is a suggestion, what? How would you explain away the United States and things like that? Is there a third question from the... Uh, yes, Jack in the uh, cricketing... Um. Hi. Um, Professor, I appreciate your skepticism on progress and the whole modern myth, but what if there is an actual solution that we just disregard due to our skepticism? Sorry, can you just repeat that? Oh, uh, well, I appreciate your skepticism on Thank progress, you. but what if there is actually a proper solution this problem, but we have disregarded it due to our skepticism. Okay. Um, I think it'll be the last, so I'll try and, I'll try and um, answer them all. Um, 
these ones brief and then we can take some questions. Uh, just been to keep them brief, so I'll try really be brief. The Soviet Union, the EU, and the United States. Well, it's a very good question. That was the second question I got. I'll answer it first because it can be relatively quick. What we forget about the United States is that it became a modern state only after a devastating civil war. It became a modern state in the middle of the 19th century. It acquired its, that was when the dollar first became the national currency. It acquired its first uh, uh, central bank around about 1913. Is it really feasible and practical to imagine the European continent repeating that process in a few years? I suggest that it isn't. It's impossible. And that's why I think it's a, a doomed project. Um, can we, the first question was, can we expect um, cooperation now? Um, well, uh, in some respects, there is cooperation. I mean, in some respects, um, states cooperate on issues of uh, um, uh, refugees and uh, um, humanitarian aid. Uh, and in many other respects. And there's some kind of limited um, cooperation on issues of um, um, the environment. Um, I, but I think what we need to sort of look for are uh, ways of cooperation that sort of don't ask too much. I mean, you know, I often hear people say things like, well, you know, it's completely clear that you could resolve the problem of global poverty by a redistribution of resources from rich countries to poor countries. Well, there's one obstacle to that. It's called democracy. How do you persuade the, the citizens of the rich countries to divest themselves of part of their wealth? Well, you can say if you don't, the world will be worse, there'll be lots of suffering, and in the end it will harm you. Normally, these arguments don't work. So it's really a task which requires um, a high degree of realism. Um, I'm not in general sort of pessimistic, for example, contrary to what people say about me, because... Um, in many areas, I've been more pessimistic. I thought the Soviet Union was a very repressive regime, uh, but I also thought it could collapse when practically no one thought that was possible. If you talk to people back in the 70s, they would say, it's deeply rooted, profoundly legitimate. I'd say, how do you know that? Have you talked to ordinary people? Jolly difficult to do at that time, by the way. Um, uh, then it collapsed. It collapsed for a number of reasons, which we can now see. Um, what I'm really arguing is not optimism and pessimism. It's really that the present and the, and the future are more discontinuous than we think they are. That the idea that things remain more or less um, uh, uh, stable and gradually change incrementally is not the way history works. Think of the 20th century. Think of the last 30 years. Enormous sudden transformations. That no one anticipates, me, me included. History is much more surprising, much more discontinuous. And rather than having large stories, telling large stories about it, which we then try to adapt to the facts, I think it would be better if we were more flexible and tried to resist recurring evils when they pop up. Problems, can't we find the pro If we're too skeptical, can't we find the solutions? The trouble is there's no agreement on what the problems are. If you say to people, uh, if you say to right-wing libertarians that... We have these pollution problems. That's because everything is in private property. If we turned all the seas and the fish in them into private property, they would be perfectly conserved. If we talk to radical socialists and Marxists, that's because uh, we've got capitalism. We've got capitalism which stops us solving anything. 
Um, if you talk to evangelical atheists, we say, if only we could get rid of this horrible monstrosity religion. I wonder where it came from. The devil? Uh, uh, <laughs> who created it? Uh, um, uh, if we could only get rid of it, everything could be a lot better. Um, there's no agreement about the problem. So it, I actually think that one of the problems is getting some degree of limited agreement about what the problems are. Let's take some questions from the back. Last one. Last triptych. So the gentleman with the uh, red scarf on. Okay. Yeah, good evening. I'm uh, Heide from Bain & Company. Um, my question was, could you name one period or moment in the history before the, 20, before the 20th century where ethically and politically we were anywhere close to being as good as now? Because I do believe in, in progress, and I agree with you that, it's, that it doesn't mean that progress will last forever and that everything we have now will be there forever. But I do believe that it's cumulative. Because if we look back 1,000 years, 2,000 years ago, 500 years ago, I do believe there is a trend. And I don't say it's going to continue forever, but I, I, I wonder whether you deny that trend to... Are you saying there were periods before which were ethically and politically better than now? Thank you. Gentlemen in the back row, middle of the back row. That's a Norbert Elias question. Yes. Um, thank you very much, um, Professor Gray. I, I want to firstly thank you for Straw Dogs, which was uh, one of those uh, life-changing books for me. And I think if anybody, is, if this is an introduction to you to... Um, Professor Gray's work, please get Straw Dogs from the library. Um, well, better yet, buy it. Better buy it. <laughs> please, please. I thought you were planted by the author there. But no, no. I said the library. We don't know um, each other. I was wondering if, if, if I may, this is a rare chance, but if I could ask, oh, I'll do two, but possibly three. No, one, no, oh, one, one question each. Okay. One each. All right. I was wondering. At the moment, um, indigenous populations are under this massive onslaught, mm. particularly in Turtle Island, which is known as Canada or um, in South America. If, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how uh, the idea of progress, which is indigenous peoples have suffered the most from through racism, exploitation of lands, thefts of land, colonialism, imperialism, etc., if you had any nuts that um, could possibly help in that kind of argument. Mm. And I wondered if you could address um, some of your main critics, which are Marxists, who, who perhaps are the most religious um, believers in progress mm-hmm. of all. And I was wondering if you had a moment to mm. um, think on that. And lastly... No, 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 no. no, no. Okay. Uh, the gentleman in the uh, sports jacket right at the back with his hand up. <clears throat> Isn't the problem here that we're quite good at seeing other people's myths, but it's much more difficult to recognize our own. Yes. And I wonder, Professor, whether you... Uh, <laughs> I wonder whether you haven't uh, shown us one of yours when you offered the oil explanation for the Iraq invasion. Now, I don't want to trigger a discussion about Iraq. Uh, that's been done to death. I didn't say it was the whole explanation. But, you know, th- there's plenty of arguments. There's also evidence against that, which you know, I'm sure you're aware of. You know, it's the Chinese that have really benefited from the Iraqi oil sector, not Western companies, not Western states. So how do we honestly identify myths without getting caught up in our own? Very good question. So again, these are the last ones. I'll do my best. 
are there any periods earlier than now that are better than now? That was the first question. I think there are some that, are, that were better in some, some ways. For example, gays weren't persecuted in the ancient world, in Greece and, and Rome. I mean, it wasn't that they were treated better, they just weren't persecuted because the whole homophobic phenomenon seems to have been lacking. That's an example. There are some human cultures which have not been patriarchal, I believe. So there have been some human cultures that have been matriarchal. They're better. There have been some that haven't had torture. They were better. Um, now, of course, in other respects, we're better. But it seems to me um, uh, that it's not so sort of obvious that it, how do you do the, the, the counting up? I mean, there are people who think, they say, well, true, we've got quite a bit of torture going on, but at least it's for good reasons. <laughs> I've heard people say things like that. Um, it's, it's quite different to have torture in a backward reactionary regime and to use these enhanced interrogation techniques very sparingly, selectively, intelligently to deal with obstacles to human rights. Um, so... What's the balance? I don't deny that there are certain respects in which we are superior. The key thing I'm trying to get across is that the respects in which we're superior can very easily be lost. I mean, there are many parts of the world in which women are now worse off than they were 10 years ago. Many. Uh, Is that really impossible in advanced societies? Don't take that for granted. Is it, is it impossible that the better situation of gays could be reversed? It's not impossible. It could be reversed in advanced countries as well as <clears throat> uh, uh, emerging countries. So that's the, my, my main answer is, yes, there have been periods that have been better in certain respects. Indigenous peoples, the very, very difficult, tragic and poignant problem. You see, I think what we need here is more than arguments. Arguments don't work with many of the people who are doing the worst efforts. You say, I mean, who's destroying parts of the natural ecology of Russia which weren't destroyed already by communism? It's the mafia. So if you say to them, let's have a conference. (laughs) I've got some damn good work which has been done by one of my colleagues here which shows that this will really have bad effects on climate change down the road. I don't think they're going to show. Um, And if there's anything that emerges from the conference which could actually threaten their profits, they might have some arguments of their own, although they wouldn't put them in the form of uh, propositions. You You really need some material incentives. And I'm... One of them, which I would love to see if it did work, is which I believe has come out of some of the uh, uh, states uh, in which the Amazon occurs, is it's been suggested, has it not, you might be aware of this by them, that rich Western countries, rich countries, not just the West, but rich countries, buy, uh, uh, pay those states for not developing the Amazon, for not destroying it for the sake of oil or soya beans or or cattle. Now, you might say it's a sort of fantasy, but in principle, I can imagine it working. I can imagine if, if any Western power or China or Japan or whoever it might be really wanted to preserve the balance, the ba- it, one shouldn't focus. I mean, this is what Greens are right about this. One shouldn't focus solely on emissions. 
as a source of climate change. One should also focus on the destruction of biosphere because the more biosphere is destroyed, the more fragile the whole system is. So if it was possible to pay these countries a sum to say, don't develop it, you can use this sum, which you would have gotten by developing it, to uh, uh, um, eradicate poverty, to educate, to achieve various forms of advance in your society, that, I think, would be, is a, potent, is a, it's a possible solution. Whether it will be adopted, I don't know, but you need more than arguments. Um, oil and, well, I, of course, Iraq wasn't all oil. I think, by the way, that the first Gulf War was all oil. It was 100% oil. Nobody pretended differently at the time. I'm talking about the 1990-91 war. If you read the biographies and writings of the politicians involved, and I knew one or two of them, they didn't say we're going in to have eternal human rights. We're going in to bring the blessings of democracy. It was entirely and explicitly about oil. That's what it was about. And so there are pure resource wars of that kind. But normally, you're quite right, they're always mixed up with other things. And also, we shouldn't forget there can be pure resource wars or wars that are largely resource wars that don't work. That's to say, you might sort of... I don't think, for example, oil was decisive in Libya. Certainly, resources weren't decisive in, uh, in, in Afghanistan. But you can easily imagine or find examples of resource wars where which might initially have started with those goals, that don't turn out. And maybe Iraq's an example. It may be that the ultimate beneficiaries of the Iraq war is Iran. Highly paradoxical, you might say, given the motives. Of, but that's characteristic of, of what really happens. So I think we are, we should be uh, very careful and cautious about not falling into our own myths. But remember, I don't think we can avoid it altogether. I think the idea that we can have a myth, myth-free way of thinking is itself a myth. I don't mean that frivolously either. Um, I mean we have to recognize that the need for stories, the need for ways of representing what happens in the past and the present to us that makes sense is very deeply rooted. And what we should beware of are stories that uh, typecast ourselves and others in ways that are damaging. I mean, I don't think there are actually too many novelties in ethics. Um, uh, I think actually the very core, it's often not extended to many groups, even to the human majority, hasn't been extended in the past, let alone beyond the human species. But what ethics is about is uh, um, sympathy, um, compassion, fairness, tolerance, um, and not using other people other human beings, as characters in our own stories. Let me conclude by, because the trouble with that is if we use people as characters in our own stories, we might have a story of massive liberation of the human species, in which we get a great sense of meaningfulness. It enables us to get up in the morning and feel pleased with ourselves. But the cost is the irreparable ruin of many people's lives. How many people's lives have been ruined in the wars of the last ten years, people have been deafened, blinded, crippled, lost their loved ones, permanently disabled, lost their jobs, live in devastated environments. Of course, sometimes there were terrible, not just sometimes, but always there were terrible things going on before, to the Marsh Arabs in Iraq, to the Kurds, use of gas and so on. 
But I think we have the, the responsibility to think uh, coolly and responsibly and austerely about all this. Let me end with what might sound like a frivolous uh, way of ending this. Uh, many years ago, I knew a distinguished philosopher um, who in conversation one day told me that he'd converted his cat to veganism. I know quite a bit about cats. I've kept many. I, I adore them. But I've never been tempted by the thought that they were incipiently vegan. So I said, what was, you know, how, how did, you must have had some pretty persuasive arguments. He said, I did. And then it was then I realized he wasn't joking. So various things went through my mind. Had he studied cats and found that some cats were good role models for future veganism? Had he presented his own cat with these benign, non-predatory feline role models? Had he... Uh, um, it would take a long time, of course. It would be difficult. Nothing inevitable about it. It'd be a struggle against great odds, but eventually the sheer beauty of the meat-free life would get lodged in the little feline heart. And they would... So, anyway, after a bit of thought, I asked him, does the cat go out? <laughs> he said, yes. So I had, a, I had a revelation then. The revelation was that he hadn't come up with soya-flavoured, uh, um, mouse-flavoured soya or something of that kind. He'd come up with a strategy which the cat went out. And normally, it was still a mystery to me, actually, because normally when cats come back, they bring back the, what they've caught. But maybe he was aware of the limitations from a progressive point of view of the human mind <laughs> and of the depth of human cognitive dissonance. So maybe... He thought he could, the cat could bring that, no one would notice. Now, what does this tell me? It tells me that philosophy is a wonderful thing. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful and, and beautiful exercise in the human mind. But it needs to be disciplined. It needs to be limited and illuminated as well by a sense of reality. Thank you. <laughs>